You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon for today is from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Because I'm going to give a, a lengthy introduction as we go. But uh, I wonder, what are the three words that come to your mind when you hear the word God? The three words that come to your mind when you think about God. You hear that word, what pops in your head? There's an organization um, that I found on the internet called Life After God that seeks to reclaim and keep some of the social benefits of Christianity without the theology of it, without God, essentially, life without God. And they post this question, and uh, it was fascinating the thousands of responses they got. So when you hear the word God, what three words come to your mind? And here's some of the ones that were shared. Some people wrote lies, dishonest, fake. That was the three words they picked. Repression, sadness, neediness. Someone else, when they thought of God, the word, three words that came to mind was Santa, Easter Bunny, and Tooth Fairy, which is technically five words, but we'll let them off the hook. P- patriarchy, hypocrisy, hate. Someone else posted backstabber, disappointment, evil. Someone else posted hateful, vengeful, and bigoted. Someone else posted ridiculous, dangerous, stupid. Someone else posted Greek, or Greek, greed, sorry, greed, fear, and control. So I wonder what would be your response? There's obviously a lot that, is, that comes with, a lot of baggage that comes with the word God. What does that mean? And, and a lot of people obviously have a lot of um, bad feelings towards the idea of a deity or a, the idea of God. And and I wonder what you would answer. What would be your, if you were really, really honest, what would be the words that would come to your mind when you hear the word God? There's an old pastor and theologian that said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what we think about the ultimate reality and if there's a God and if there is a God, what he's like and what, how he treats humanity, um, that that really does serve as sort of the center of everything else that we think about the world and life. What we think about ultimate reality is going to affect then how we relate to it. And if we think there's a God, what, he, what we believe him to be like is, uh, will really shape, no matter what you might think, no matter what your world might, might be, that might be the most important thing about you, at least according to this 
theologian. Um, there's a bunch of Christians that got together and put together this famous document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, this was how they started their document. They said, question one. So this is a question and answer thing to teach people truths about Christianity. Question one. This is where they felt like things needed to start if you were going to understand Christianity was this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer was, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Isn't that an interesting way to say that? That the chief end of man, the purpose of everything, is to glorify this deity that the Bible describes and to enjoy Him. So if you think about the three words that came to your mind when you heard the word God, was enjoyable a word that popped in your mind. The word enjoyable when you think about God. And so we're doing this series right now. I'm going to try to make the case today that when you think of God, one of the words I'm going to make the case for today is that one of the words should be enjoyable. That God is enjoyable, deeply satisfying in every way. And I'm going to try to make that case today. Uh, we're in the middle of a series right now in January of why we exist. We've just uh, finished our first year as a church through 2020 and we had our birthday yesterday, our first birthday, not yesterday, last week, last Sunday. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to, um, we typically walk through books of the Bible, we walk through the Gospel of John, we're going to jump into Genesis here soon and try to make sense of Genesis. But I thought it would be good for us to take a month and just go, okay, what is the point of our church? And why are there a bunch of people gathering here in this room, in this museum now? What, why do we exist uh, as human beings, but also as a people, as a congregation, as a church. And so that's where we're going. Last week we talked about the gospel being above all, that we have a message, and that it's that message that has gathered us as a people. It's that message that is uh, at the heart of what we proclaim. It's the message we're going to celebrate forever of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ to make us right with himself and each other. And, uh, and out of that flows then this one, is that we were created to enjoy God. That's the case I'm going to try to present to you today is that we exist to enjoy God. And I want to give you eight reasons and then go to Psalm 16. I think it'll be helpful if I give you sort of these eight reasons, searching all of the scriptures and plucking these different things just to show you that this is a theme across scripture, that this is a theme across your entire spiritual life. And then I want to show you those realities in Psalm 16. Okay, so lengthy introduction, brief exposition of Psalm 16. And then a couple of thoughts about our church. That's where we're going. So eight reasons why we exist to enjoy God. Why He is enjoyable, and that's a good thing, and why we can enjoy Him. First, of, first and foremost, number one, the command of God. The Bible actually commands us to enjoy God. In Mark 12, 29-31, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in all of the Scriptures? So the Old Testament has somewhere like 613-ish, somebody counted them up, commands in the old testament for god's people and someone asked jesus what's number one what would be the top one if like you could just do one what would it be what would be the summary commandment and jesus answers the most important is this hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one and you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength and the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these we are called to love God with all that we are. And notice that every time that that pops up, it pops up several times in the scriptures. This idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. So there is this command in scripture that we are to 
love God from the heart, desire, enjoy Him. You've heard the phrase, love is a verb. Well, yeah, kind of. But love is also a disposition. A disposition towards God from the heart. We are to love God. And then once He has our heart, soul, mind, and strength come after that. And actually the love of neighbor comes out of that too. So first and foremost, God commands us to enjoy Him, to love Him, to delight in Him from the heart. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command. Psalm 100, 1 and 2, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Philippians 4, 4, which we started our service with, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed, happy. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, and so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God commands us to delight in him, because he is God and creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He is the source of all delights. And so we are commanded to enjoy him. Now, that might to us feel a bit narcissistic. Who does God think he is that he could command us to delight in him, like to make him the center of everything? Well, that's only narcissistic if you're not actually the center of the universe, right? That's wrong for us to expect someone to have that kind of wholehearted allegiance to us because we're not God. But if God is the ultimate true reality, if He is the fundamental source of everything, if He is truly good, holy, holy, <laughs> if He is perfect in every way, then it is right for Him to command total allegiance. That would be wrong of us, narcissistic of us, but He is an, a being of, of a different kind and therefore, it is right and good for, us to him, for him to command us to enjoy him. In fact, it's the most loving thing that he could do would be for, us, for him to command us to love him because that would be the most satisfying thing for us. So first of all, eight reasons why we exist to enjoy God is first and foremost, God commands us to enjoy him and that is a good command. Secondly, I want to show you the reason why we're made to enjoy God is to just think a little bit for a moment on the essence of evil. The essence of evil is all about enjoyment. The essence of evil is delight-driven, the inclinations of your heart. The essence of evil is delighting in something other than God. Idolatry is delighting in something God gives apart from God, having your delight terminate in that thing. Um, Augustine, an ancient theologian, says this, the essence of sin is disordered love. Disordered love. It's when your loves are not in their proper order that things get all wacky. And so this idea of sin is disordered love. I'm loving something instead of God or apart from God or actually in defiance of God. The original sin in the garden, Satan tempts Eve with a dissatisfaction with God. That being rightly related to God, obeying God, walking with God is not nearly as satisfying as eating this piece of fruit. Think about Genesis 3.6. Listen to this for just a moment. Like, just notice the delight and enjoyment-driven words in Genesis 3-6 when humanity fell in their relationship with God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, you see the enjoyment, the cravings, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some of a, of, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the essence of evil is having this craving for things that God disapproves of. Uh, having these cravings for things instead of God, in the place of God. 
And so at the essence of evil is this, in, this inclination, this drawing of our hearts to enjoy something other than God. Jeremiah 2, this is what God has to say about His people, uh, the Israelites. And here's what He says. Here's how He describes this. He says, Be appalled, O heavens. This is Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So He's going hard here. Like, I want you to be um, amazed at how angry I am. Right? Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me as the source of their joy, as the source of their provision, as the delight of their heart. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the one who truly satisfies, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what they have done, and this is so wicked and evil inside of God, is to have the source of life and all goodness, to look at him, and then go, no, I'm going to take the runoff from the world. I'm going to build a cistern, and whatever water, that's what cisterns do, they just collect the rainwater. Whatever just kind of drains off the land and gathers in this little cesspool, instead of having the fresh water of knowing God, I would rather have whatever runs off from the world. And he's saying that's an evil thing. That's the essence of evil, is to want the runoff from the world instead of the fresh living water spring of God himself. I had someone um, come and talk to me years ago, a young college-age girl, and she seemed really interested in Christianity. It was fresh and new to her. She sat down, she came and met, had set up a meeting with me in my office, and we walked through just who Jesus is and what he had done, and she was sort of marveling at this. And just like, that's an amazing story, and it was like, man, I think this is it. Like, I just, it seemed like her eyes were opening to the glories of Jesus Christ and what he'd done for her and the relationship that she could have with God and all of this enjoyment I'm talking about here. And then she looked at me and said, I don't think this is for me. And she left. And I'll tell you, like, I had a little bit of a shiver run down my spine of just like, she saw Jesus in all of his glory and she comprehended it and went, I don't think I want it. And I just like, I've been in some weird situations where I felt like there has been sort of a, an evil thing going on and this was like at the top of the list, and it was, it was very sweet. I still want to have this, you know, relationship with her and try to persuade her. It wasn't like she's a bad person, but there was something about beholding the majesty of Jesus, understanding it, and then going, I think I can do better, that was just sort of like jarring to me. And, and I, that's what Eve did. That's what got us into this mess. That's what God is so upset about in Jeremiah is, is this. And so I, I don't mean to disparage anyone, but I... That, that sense of like the living water, the fountain, and then deciding that you want to be satisfied with something else is really at the heart of what is broken with the world, ultimately. So number three, the heart of salvation. Enjoyment of God is at the heart of salvation. In the Old Testament, God laments that his people keep falling into idolatry and faithfulness, unfaithfulness, and he resolves to change them. In Ezekiel chapter 11, he says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all of the detestable things and all the abominations. Verse 19, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone. That's, an illust that's, a, that's a picture that God uses in the Old Testament of like people who don't want a relationship with God and want to find their delights in all of these other all. Um, idols. They want to satisfy their souls with all these other things. It's like they have a heart of stone. 
that's just incapable of, of loving appropriately. And God says the way that he is going to resolve it is that he is going to remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and I shall be, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So at the essence of salvation, according to the Bible, is to receive a new heart that has new desires, new joys. It now has this, like, I, I, I now see God as being beautiful and loving and enjoyable and satisfying in every way imaginable, and that that's at the heart of salvation. That's how God describes it, as having a new heart. Now I have the capability, imperfectly, to obey that command to enjoy Him. Before that, I don't have the capability of, of understanding and seeing that until He reveals Himself to me, until He takes out my heart of stone. I could never behold and understand who He is. So a changed mind is at the heart of salvation. I changed my mind about God. A right standing, I now can come before this God without any fear of punishment. I have a right standing now because of what he has done for me. I now can stand and take part in the delights that God has for me. It's a new heart. I have new desires that are distinct from the desires I had before. I have an intimate relationship. I actually can know the God who is enjoyable. It's marked by changed delights. My favorite parable in the New Testament is from Matthew 13, 44. This is my favorite. This is kind of my, one of my orienting North Star kind of verses that I navigate my life with. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he sold all, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What motivates that? He finds something that's more valuable to him than anything else he has. And in his joy, he sells it. doesn't try to bargain. doesn't try to talk the offer down. He's like, everything I have for that. And, that's, and he's happy to do it. And that's really what I want my life to be about, is that this kingdom of God thing is such a treasure that it's like, I'll trade all of it for that. I'm not trying to get it cheap. I'm not trying to get it at the lowest possible discount. Everything I have for that deal, done, uh, delight. This treasure brings and wells up a delight in the heart that goes, everything else for that, I'll take it. Think about John 6.35. If you remember through our study through John, do you, do you, did you ever notice how enjoyable Jesus is for those who humbly receive him? You, you, did you notice that? How deeply satisfying he is? Jesus says this in John 6.35. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's satisfaction, isn't it? Your deepest spiritual needs are met because of the sufficiency and enjoyableness of God. That's part of what conversion and new birth, faith in Jesus, is that now he becomes enjoyable to you and he begins to satisfy your soul. Saving faith is finding the gospel in God and the God of the gospel of better quality than anything else you have. Therefore, you're turning your trust from those things to Him. You're submitting your allegiance to Him. An awakening expressed in changed desires, priorities, and tastes. You're distinctly different because you've been changed. You have new, you have new desires. All right, number four. The strategy of godliness is all about enjoying God. So you've come to faith in Christ. You're like, okay, I believe that. I do have these desires for God. They're imperfect. They're inconsistent. How do I grow now as a Christian? Well, it's all about enjoying God. 
It's about all about those new desires that are just little seedlings in your hearts, in your heart, of knowing and understanding God, is seeing those grow. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the idea there is not that you prove you love God by keeping the rules. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that you focus on delighting in me, and your following of the commands will then begin to take care of themselves. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will change you. So it's cause and effect. Your love for me will mean that you begin to live a life that more conforms with the way I think life should go, the way God designed life to go. So Jesus is articulating very clearly here that you focus your heart's desires on me and I will transform you into the person I want you to be. Delight is actually how you fight sin. So let's look on the negative side. Delight is how you fight sin. There's a man named Thomas Chalmers who preached a famous sermon 200 years ago called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a great sermon. It's worth reading. It's old English, so you've got to work at it, but it's full of really great things. And his idea is, is that you can't get rid of something just by a negative. So you've got, uh, let, let's think of like suds in a cup. You know, you're washing the dishes and you've got suds in the cup. Well, you know how you put a little water in there, swish it around, and, get, and it's like there's always more suds, right? The only way to get the suds out is fill the cup up so full that then it expels it. And what he's saying is that we tend to treat our fight against sin and the things that we're ashamed of and the th- things we feel guilty about by just trying to subtract them, just cutting them out of our life. But then we don't replace them with anything. We don't replace them, and, and nature abhors a vacuum. The human heart abhors a vacuum. You will love something. So you can't just not love, just go, I'm just going to stop loving that bad thing. It's like you have to replace that. You have to displace it with a greater love. There was a, so a mom in our old youth ministry who had triplet sons. And, uh, and she lost them because she got hooked on meth. Kids were taken away from her. And meth is just awful, like just so difficult. And she began this long, decades-long process of becoming clean from meth. And you know what motivated her? Her desire for meth was superseded by the fact that she wanted her boys back. There was a greater, just just saying I want to just be done with meth was never going to give her the strength to overcome that addiction. She had to replace it with something greater that then pushed her through the difficult parts there. And our godliness is kind of the same way in that God and pleasing him becomes greater to us than the destructive habits and problems that we have. Does that make sense? So my point being is that part of how you grow in godliness is by enjoying God and having his pleasure, his desire be greater than whatever sinful desire you might have. Another way that we grow in godliness through delight is, um, is by enjoying God through his gifts, enjoying the things that God gives as a way of enjoying God. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches. Don't delight in them. But then he goes on to say, But uh, do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. Isn't that interesting? The gifts of God are terrible gods, right? We're not to enjoy them for their own sake, but they can be enjoyed in God. So, Some people have taken this idea of going, okay, God is greater than anything else, therefore I should just live a life with nothing at all. I'm not going to enjoy anything but God, kind of what we call asceticism. I'm going to be a monk. I'm just going to do all these different things um, that just eliminate every other desire because I so desire God. 
which is not what Christianity is teaching. It is a teaching that we enjoy those gifts as a way of enjoying God. And so now, um, my marriage becomes a whole lot more enjoyable when I'm not enjoying Brie instead of God, but enjoying Brie as a gift from God. That there are things I learn about God by enjoying my wife, and I enjoy God through my wife and beyond my wife. My relationship with her is better because I don't put her as the highest priority in my life, but I also don't just get rid of her because God's more important, right? I can enjoy my wife, my kids, my friendship, my job, my possessions. I can enjoy my hobbies as a way of enjoying God as good gifts from him. Make sense? So enjoyment is both how we fight sin, but it's also how we grow in our delight in God is, is by enjoying his gifts rightly. There's an old song that goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Now, in one sense, that's true. In another sense, it's not. Because you could also say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely bright in the light of his glory and grace. You now can enjoy a hike in the woods a whole lot better as a gift from God, not as a replacement from God. You can enjoy your kids and your job and your, you know, your vehicles or whatever it is as a means of enjoying God and you grow in godliness because you see everything as a gift from his hand and a tool to be used to glorify him. Make sense? So enjoyment of God is actually part of the godliness process. Number five, the resiliency of love is dependent on enjoyment of God. Let me ask you this. Why do you think God loves you? Do you think it's because he needs you? It is, is, do you think it's because he's impressed with you? Maybe. Maybe you're just that impressive that God's like, whoa. But my guess is, is that he loves you because he is perfectly content in himself. He is perfectly content with himself and therefore freely, unreservedly dispenses unending, unconditional love to people who are undeserving. His self-satisfaction is so great, it overflows in love for people who can do nothing for God, right? We bring nothing to the table. You get this. If you've had a baby, you understand that that baby contributes nothing to your daily life. That baby just takes and takes and takes, right? But there is something in you that I think is God-like that overflows and like, I am consumed, you consume everything from me, Right? but I still have more to give. And we get that. We get that in a lot of different relationships. We get that. And God is like that to the nth degree. So he loves us because that is who he is, not because we're so lovable and not because he needs something from us. Therefore, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is dependent on the first one. God loves us because he's so self-satisfied in himself. He needs nothing from us and just freely loves us. And when we begin to love him, we now have access to that unending love, that self-satisfying love that flows out of him. We're now satisfied so much in God, we now have the ability to love whether we get anything out of it or not. That's a uniquely Christian love. That's a uniquely Christian love to be so satisfied in God that I don't care how needy and frustrating you are, I'm going to continue to love you. Because I'm satisfied in him, I don't need anything from you, Right? And so I can just love you. And that's why the second commandment is connected to the first. You cannot do 
that God-like love without being satisfied in Him. The love, delight, and satisfaction in God is the only source of the kind of love required of us uh, that God says marks Christians. The source of God's love, His utter contentment and happiness in Himself can indeed become the source of your love. Indeed must become the source of your love. You're so satisfied in Him, you can love without keeping score. It's a unique thing. So the resiliency of love is dependent on a, dis- in, on a enjoyment of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that had been given among the churches of Macedonia. So Paul's talking to the Corinthians about how impressed he is with uh, probably the Philippian church and some churches around that area. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part for the Jerusalem church. Jerusalem church is going through a hard time, a lot of poverty, a lot of persecution. And the Macedonian church doesn't have it a whole lot better. But the grace of God has so been embedded to their hearts. They're so satisfied in their joy with God that when they're pressed, what comes out of them? Generosity. <laughs> An irrational generosity here. We want you to know, brothers, that the grace of God has been given to the church of Macedonia. In a severe test of affliction, so their love was not based on comfortable circumstances, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's like the anti-prosperity gospel. Like, it's just their abundance of joy came through trials because then their contentment in God was just that much more exposed and that much more freely to be able to be given. You know what keeps missionaries on the field? For decades in places where people just do terribly dark, wicked things, You know what keeps missionaries going? It's not a compassion for those people. It's a love for the glory of God. Because after about a month in a hard place where people are cannibalizing each other and breaking each other and like all of these these terrible, wicked ceremonies that can happen sometimes in really dark places of the world, what keeps a Christian missionary there? It is a love and an enjoyment and a contentment in God. Because about a month of seeing what people do to each other, you'll go, God, pour out your wrath on them. I'm done. I'm going home. But for those that are deeply contented in God, they can continue to hold out the word of life, continue, continue again and again to be willing to to love in this way. That's what you see. Think of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. They're at Philippi, and they've been thrown in jail for doing good stuff. They uh, met Lydia and did some, um, um, uh, led her to Christ. And there's this little church that's forming and this little uh, demon-possessed girl gets delivered and the people are mad because they were making money off of her. And so they throw Paul and Silas in prison. And Paul and Silas are in the center of the prison, which is the most uncomfortable thing. And if you kind of study what the prisons are like, they're probably all contorted and chained up in a way that would just be miserable. And guess what they're doing? they begin singing praises to God throughout the night. Their joy, they're not doing this for show. They just, their hearts are so full that even in the worst possible spot, their enjoyment of God. And what happens is, is that an earthquake comes and the prison kind of cracks open and there's a way of escape. People could, could escape if they wanted to. But Paul and Silas's joy was so bewildering that all of the other prisoners were like, we should stay. We have an opportunity to get away And Paul and Silas says, no, we should stay. Just think of that for a moment. Their joy in God was so bewildering and so mesmerizing that they're able to convince a bunch of criminals that they should not escape the prison right now. 
because of their love for the guard. No, the guard, back in Roman times, if the prisoner escapes, often you would take your own life. You would take the place of the prisoner. That was the incentive to do your job well. And so they had probably been beaten up by this jailer, and yet they're still singing praises to God, and their joy is so palpable, so experiential, that they convince the other prisoners to stay out of love for the guard. And the guard is transformed by the joy that allows them to love someone who had mistreated them. Does that make sense? That's unbelievable. Why? Why are they so contented in God that even in torture they could love their captor with no reason? It's bewildering, but the resilience of Christian love is based on an enjoyment and contentment in God. Number six, the advancement of the kingdom. The advancement of the kingdom. The reason we're made to enjoy God is because that's actually how the kingdom advances. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. This is the Paul, Peter at uh, Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come. All of a sudden, people were hearing the gospel in their own languages. And Peter gets up, preaches a sermon, and then all of a sudden, there's thousands of people that respond to the gospel and are baptized. And all of a sudden, you go from like 120 people in Jerusalem to thousands. Mega church, just overnight, just right out of the gate. And here is how their community is described. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. This is fresh. This is infancy Christianity. This is before they had time to fight about stuff (laughs) and kind of mess it up. Like this is just like, man, right at its very center, right at its very beginning. This is what their response to Jesus was like. It says in verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. They're receiving they're, they're, they're receiving these things as God's gifts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was their joy. And delight in God that was this magnet that just daily people were coming in because they're like, we've never seen people so satisfied before. So in love with each other before when those two people shouldn't get along. Like, we've got people talking to each other that don't talk to each other. What is that? It's a joy in God that allows them to overcome the things that divide them. And this gospel creates a joy in them that's magnetic. You see that in the book of Acts. They receive the word and rejoicing. Receive the word and rejoicing. And then rejoicing and the word spread. Rejoicing and the word spread. You see that throughout Acts. That there is something about the enjoyment of God that makes the message more attractive, I guess, in some ways. Psalm 57, 9 says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So their evangelism is kind of described as singing God's greatness, his praises among the nations. Think of David's confession after falling into terrible sin and being confronted and a nation is falling apart because of his sin. And part of his confession prayer in Psalm 51, he says this in verses 12 and 13. This is super interesting. He says, restore to me, what? The joy of my salvation because sin has stolen my joy god would you give me my joy says restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you god if you want more people to be christians you better fill me with joy so that then when i tell them they'll believe it and they'll come right the connection between his joy and his evangelism his joy and other sinners being want to, wanting to be a part of this are connected. John 4, 28 and 29. So the woman, the woman at the well, 
that Jesus confronts very gently and yet kind of probingly. It's uh, tense. Uh, so she goes back home and listen to what she says. John 4, 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. And in the context of that, she's been so deeply satisfied by her encounter with Jesus that the woman who's going out in the middle of the day to avoid people is now running into the town going, you've got to see what just happened to me. You've got to come see this man that I met. Transformed by her joy and her satisfaction. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, you do not see grumpy, grumbly, angry evangelists in the scriptures. You won't find one, at least not one that gets anything done. Our joy, our satisfaction in God is part of the deal. So, you, if you want the kingdom to expand, you need to double down on finding your satisfaction in God. Why would anyone want to be like you if you're not enjoying God? If following Jesus produces people like us, would that be good news to the world? If the gospel's effect on us is seen by the world, would that be good news? Would they go, yeah, we like that those guys exist and we're kind of thinking about maybe joining them. Would it be good news based on the gospel's um, Anyone can be outraged. Anyone can be upset about stuff. Anybody can yell. But to be contented through trials and hold out the word of life to people, well, that's, now we have something. Make sense? Okay, I need to keep moving. Number seven, the reality of eternity. Think about where we're going. If we trust in God, where are we going? Revelation 21, the bride and the spirit say, come and let the one who hears come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. Those that find God satisfying will end up in a place where he's eternally satisfying. And if you think about those who turn away, the reality of hell, at least in part, is to be cut off and incapable of experiencing any delight ever again. It's to be cut off from the source of all delights. So we can just even think like our joy in God is where we're headed and we get a jump start on that now. So for the believer, this earthly existence in a fallen world is the worst it will ever get. For the unbeliever, this current early existence is the best it will ever get. There's more joy for those that want to be related to God forever, unending joys. For those that reject the God who is the source of all those delights, will be cut off from them. So the reality of eternity, both positively and negatively, points to the fact that God is enjoyable. And then lastly, the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 13 through 15 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the glory of God, the bottom line, the glory of God. John Piper says this, I love this, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. You want to know how to bring God glory? Find yourself more and more satisfied in him. I love an illustration actually that John Piper gives. He's the one that helps shape a lot of this message, honestly. Um, but he gives this illustration, which I think is wonderful. It's like, okay, 
So this idea of the glory of God being connected to our delight in Him. Um, imagine that it's my anniversary, and uh, I come home, I got some flowers behind my back, and I walk in the door, and I surprise breathe. Ta-da! I got flowers. There's one rose for every year we've been married. That'd be 15, I think, 15. And uh, I got these for you. I couldn't help myself. And nothing would make me happier than to spend the evening with you. I've made plans for dinner, kids have a babysitter, and nothing would delight me more. Nothing would make me more happy than to spend the evening with you. Now, if she would ask me, look, why are you saying that? Well, I read it in a book that husbands are supposed to get their wives flowers, so I got you some flowers, right? If I were to respond that way, she would take, that would be no compliment, right? Oh, you did this because you had to. But the fact that I'm saying it would make me happy, I couldn't help myself, my, my, you have my heart, I'm, I delight in you, changes the whole construction, right? If I'm doing it just because the Bible tells me to, as opposed to a delight in God, there's a difference there. Now what if she were to say, oh, you, if I were to say, nothing would make me happier than to spend the evening with you. She goes, oh, you're just always thinking about your happiness, aren't you? No, she would never say that, right? Because my delight in her glorifies her. So the same with God. God is not any different than that. Just begrudging obedience against a God we don't really like that much is not glorifying to him. But if it's like, God, I couldn't help myself, it makes me so happy to spend time with you. It makes me so happy to sing your praises. So pursuing our own happiness in God glorifies him. You get that, right? You get that. Makes sense. If we say, I read in this book, if we say this to God, you, um, I read this in a book that I had to do this so I don't go to hell. Bring him in very much glory at all. I did more good things than bad. I wasn't that naughty. I own a lot of, I know a lot of Bible stuff. That's not going to cut it, right? But if you say, God, you have captured my heart. I want nothing but you. You are everything to me. I have lived and spent and suffered because I trust and delight in you. You'll be whisked away into his joy forever. Do you see the difference? Totally different Christianities. One's real, one's not real. Psalm 16. We're finally there. This will be quick. Now look at this. Those eight reasons, could have come up with more, but eight. Do you see from the beginning to the end of the Christian life is about enjoying God? That the flip side of enjoying God is evil, right? This is the case the Bible's making for us. Psalm 16, we're almost done. I promise this will not take very long. Psalm 16, 1 through 11. Now, I want you to notice, it's on the back of your handout. I would love for you to underline or circle or whatever. Just take note of the delight, enjoyment, driven statements in this okay the places where you see delight and enjoyment and see if you don't see a little bit of what we've talked about in these eight reasons here in psalm 16 preserve me O god for in you i take refuge i say to the lord you are my lord and i have no good apart from you as for the saints in the land they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You see the contentment there? 
the life you've assigned me, God, I am very happy with. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have something even better waiting for me. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. He thinks about what God is teaching him as he falls asleep. He falls asleep not counting sheep, but counting God's kindnesses, God's delights. So he's just consumed with God. I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And my flesh also dwells secure. A nice byproduct, right? My soul also, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just that last verse. Three things real quickly. There is a path of life that only God can make known to us, right? Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. This path of satisfaction in God is something God has to make known to us. There is also, this means that our default path is a path of death, right? The default path is a path of death. You need to show me the path of life and put me on it, right? So, you make known to me the path of life, this path of satisfaction in God. Number two, this path leads to an, all, to an all-satisfying presence of God. A place in the presence of God that's all-satisfying. You see that in the second line? In your presence there is fullness of joy. So this path of life that God must reveal to me, put me on, is a place that is entirely satisfying in God's presence. And then thirdly, this path is called following Jesus. Is what this path is called. It's not here in Psalm 16, but if you zoom out and see the larger story of the Bible, you realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the path of life. No one comes to the Father, his presence, but through me. So Psalm 11 is giving us hints that this joyful, all-satisfying life is found in Jesus, that Jesus is the path of life made known to us. He is the one who gives us presence of God where there's full, satisfying joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus is the path of life revealed. Jesus is the presence of God made available to you. And Jesus is at the right hand of God. At your right hand, God, is pleasures forevermore, which is Jesus. When we have Jesus, we have all the promises of God. We have all the treasures of God. Christ came that we might be satisfied in God, that we might turn from being satisfied in other things and find satisfaction in him. Because he lived a perfect life in our place, died in our place, rose again, and now is making a way. Has made a way for us to be satisfied in God and truly, truly satisfied. Bottom line, in this church, redeeming grace, that's why we've got one of the three words we picked, enjoy, on our cool sign here. Is we were made to enjoy God and for all of these reasons. We think it's at the very heart of the Bible, at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of eternal life at the heart of the good news that we offer to people. So in this church, we will pursue our maximum happiness and the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're just going to be relentless shooting at that target in everything that we do. Jonathan Edwards says this about his pastoring. He said, I think I myself in the way of my duty is to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. He's like, that's my job as a pastor is to raise my people's affections for Jesus as high as I can get them. That's my only job. 
is to get my people to be so satisfied in God. That's what I'm going to preach in my sermons. That's what I'm going to invite people into is to raise the affections of my hearers. George Whitfield, a contemporary, also the great, great awakening. Edwards and Whitfield were big parts of that. Whitfield says this, would ministers preach for eternity? They would endeavor to move the affections and warm the heart and not constrain their hearers to suspect that they, that they dealt in the false commerce of unfelt truth. Truth that does not grab their hearts is ineffective. Right? So a Jesus that's so beautiful, so compelling, so satisfying, that is our aim. And then secondly, in this church, we will share our delight in God publicly with each other and everyone. So we want to spill this out on people, right? So this is not going to be a grumpy, angry, frustrated church. It's just not going to, as much as I can help it. We're going to be a happy, satisfied, in God kind of church. That doesn't mean we don't lament. doesn't mean we don't mourn. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that our joy in God, even in lament and trial, is what is going to distinguish us from the rest of the world. All right. So we invite you to share in the delight that this church has in God. We encourage you to trust from, turn from all of those things, all those broken cisterns, all those empty idols, and come to God in, through Christ. Put your trust in Him. And we encourage you to join in in the joyful celebration of enjoying God together with us. Follow Jesus. Bend the knee. Bow to Him. Receive Him. And it takes time. These joys, sometimes they come quick. Sometimes they come with some effort, but we're going to get there together and we're going to help each other get there. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are an enjoyable God, that when, our, when the word God comes in our mind, Lord, I pray that one of those three words would be enjoyable, satisfying. Lord, I pray that that would be how we see God in this church, is deeply satisfying, deeply enjoyable, and God, I pray that that would be the message we proclaim to the world is that they can have a relationship with the enjoyable God of everything through Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that it would be the beauty of who you are and what you offer us that would cause us to turn from lesser things, from broken things, from sinful things, from things that have been destroying us and others. And we would turn and look to Jesus, who he is, what he's done to bring us into a relationship with God. I pray that's true for each one of us, Lord. And I pray that we would progress in it because that's the destination. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to get there. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.